0: And this is something that the studios didn't see coming, exploded in popularity at my church.
1: <laughs> Hi, and welcome to episode of Cine Nation. My name is Brandon Sparks.
0: And I'm Thomas Horton.
1: And here on Cine Nation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories in them. But this month, we are talking about a director, and that director is Guillermo del Toro. So last week, Thomas, what did we talk about regarding Del Toro?
0: Yeah, we covered his first three films and how all of them kind of have to do with monsters, especially Uh, mimics kind of the outlier. It's, you know, it's his first film within Hollywood. It's his first American film, his first English language film. And it doesn't really hit on the same themes as his other two. Uh, I think you and I both said last week that the, the devil's backbone really felt like the successor to uh Kronos a lot more than mimic did yeah but if you if you take chronos and devil's backbone together what you get are these themes of as we were saying the idea that it's not monsters we should be as afraid of it's men and especially greed that that greed can drive these men to do terrible things and we're often introduced in his films to someone you would consider a monster but they are much less monstrous than the the men that they are interacting with. Yeah. You know, with with Mimic it's a little different. It's it's not really the 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 humans in it have the best intentions. It's maybe kind of like a, a cautionary tale of science in the in the way of, you know, Michael Crichton, but yeah, so a little different. And we also discussed that he did not have a very good time on that one, so that might be why it qualifies as an outlier.
1: Yeah. And that's one too like it's it's weird because like it has some of the pieces of del toro but it's like it's it's the they're not all fitting fitting the puzzle basically mm-hmm. it's like you kind of have the interesting kind of like ins- the insects that you are like interesting insect creatures that i think you really see in hellboy we'll talk about today um and you've seen kind of the insects part of chronos and and those early films um but yeah you, you, his style is there but i think we said earlier it's like it shows that like directors don't just control like oh the style looks great it's all Mm -hmm. about the pacing of these films and you make more choices than just that and it shows that the editing was very much tampered with because the pacing is really kind of uh all over the place um we also talked about too one of the big kind of reoccurring things that happens in his films is is the idea of a prologue or the 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 kind of structure of prologue at the beginning Mm -hmm. of the movie that usually kind of establishes what you're going into and it's kind of it's kind of usually just a first scene and 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 chronos it's the alchemist talk basically giving you the exposition of what's what chronos is and what this this instrument does um mimic it has the same thing where it's the three years before the 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 weirdest one because it just feels like oh we're hopping it's it's one where like it feels like we're hopping right into a del toro movie but then you realize it actually just is kind of a prologue because it's a three yeah. years later.
0: Well, it's just the stakes are so high in that yeah. prologue. It's like this this virus is wiping out the entire children's population of New York. And yeah. then it's like, all right, that was, that was three years ago. We're good now. And
1: Mira Sorvino is introduced so weirdly because it's just so quickly. Hey, we need you right here. And you're like, yeah. oh, are we following her this movie? Um, yeah. And she's kind of there. Um, but then Devil's Backbone, you kind of have the opening narration from the uh the uh, the doctor of of the orphanage yeah. and you're gonna see that kind of reoccur here. I think all the stuff we've talked about previously about uh monsters are our men are kind of the, the the scariest monsters and the monsters are actually kind of the the good creatures in Del Toro's movies. It's it's the idea that like the and I think I'll bring this up later in the month with maybe Nightmare Allies the freaks are the more sympathetic characters and the men mm-hmm. are the more monstrous characters
0: yeah, um exactly. and most
1: and most of the time they're they're like motivated motivated by greed and you also it doesn't play as much into these two movies but you also have the kind of character of a child and seeing things things through a child's eyes and we talked mm-hmm. about in Chronos where there's a, the important relationship between uh the grandfather and his granddaughter uh, mimic even has uh, a, a child that plays a very key role in the plot of the film and devil's backbones all about uh kids at an orphanage um mm-hmm. here we get kind of one scene in Hellboy that i think is is really funny um yeah. from a kid perspective but that's that's really kind mm-hmm. of it so yeah so those are kind of the themes we've talked about the fairy tale like nature of his movies the mixture of fairy tale and horror and how that will kind of Permeate his career; those are the kind of tattoo things, the dark fairy tales, so he's known for. Yeah,
0: and and this week we'll be talking a lot about comic books. Yeah, which is partially why I tagged in this week, <laughs> but um, but I do think that also speaks to what you were just saying about the prologue. Del Toro is someone who was raised on comic books, loved, is obsessed with comic books. Which is what it will inform the next two career choices in his career yeah. as we're going chronologically here. But I think that's also, you know, that that is part of the comic book world is that first page you get that explains what happened in the last issue, uh, yeah. you know, is as a, as a little catch up. And so I, I do think that's kind of why that works its way into most of his films is this just he's that's that's what he's used to as far as storytelling goes.
1: That's a good point. I mean, even to be topical, the most recent film, The Batman, has opening narration it's not the mm-hmm. first scene, but opening when you introduce the Batman, it's him writing in a journal saying Thursday, October thirty first, whatever. Like this is what this world, this is what Gotham is. You're being introduced into this world from this character's perspective. So yeah, I admit that's very prevalent in these two films for sure. So we're talking about comic book movies. So he goes from Devil's Backbone into this into Blade Two,
0: into Blade Two. So, so
1: how does this all occur? To get
0: ourselves to Blade Two, we're gonna do we're gonna go back to the 1950s all right i've prepared a little <laughs> field trip for us
1: this is just like the beginning of hellboy we're just like okay here's here's world yeah, war two here's, Let's talk here's about our that. prologue yeah here's our
0: prologue i'm gonna do a brief history lesson on specifically marvel comics and monsters uh-huh. uh as as marvel films have grown in popularity a lot of people don't even realize that that blade is the first successful marvel theatrical release the first blade was the it was the second it was only the second theatrical released Marvel film after Howard the Duck in 1986.
1: Wow, that's a big big gap. Yeah,
0: they had a couple other films that were released overseas. The Dolph Lundgren Punisher was released overseas but didn't get a theatrical release in America. The uh the um oh god, who what's his name that played uh Hassel the David Hasselhoff Nick Fury uh, oh, movie Oh, Nick Fury was a t-
1: TV movie.
0: That was a TV movie, yes. There was a Captain America movie that was not released in the United States. So, you have Howard the Duck in 1986, and you've got Blade 1. But, as I said, Blade really goes all the way back to the 1950s to something called the Comics Code. We've talked a lot about the Hayes Code on this podcast. You and I like to rant yeah. about the Hayes Code yeah. a good bit. And the Comic Code is almost exactly the same thing. It happened to comics. Really? Around the same time as the Hayes Code, except it was self-enforced. It was kind. Of, it, it ha- after the Hayes Code happened, these comic books kind of saw the writings on the wall. There were a lot of congressional hearings about comic books kind of rotting the the brains of children. There was this very influential book that a child psychologist wrote who said who said it, that comic books were turning them all into deviants. So all the comic book companies got together and they said, "We're going to impose this code on ourselves." to keep them from from canceling us basically yeah so that was that was in the 1950s and when it was brought about it really hit marvel specifically hard at the time they were most known for crime comics so like detective comics uh murder i mean it was pretty dark stuff and you know in the 50s the superheroes were not really popular at all in comic books superheroes like Captain America had really kind of died off after World War II. Yeah. Um, But crime comics were very popular, but they were hit the hardest by the comics code. They were, you know, people were worried about putting these crime stories in the hands of children, which is who comic books were intended for. Mm -hmm. So Marvel turned to monster comics at the time and horror comics. They made a huge pivot from crime to monsters. And for the latter half of the 1950s into the early 1960s, Horror comics were Marvel's main bread and butter. But as these monster comics rose in popularity, the comics code adapted to meet those concerns as well. So in the early 1960s, uh, vampires were banned. Mummies were banned. Skeletons were banned.
1: Wow. You couldn't
0: really do monsters at all. So with monsters taken off the table, that's when Marvel began to shift their focus again. So for instance, they had a, a horror uh, series going about a man who had been shrunken down against his will to the size of an insect
1: <laughs> and was being
0: hunted by these ant monsters that were gigantic, that turned into Ant Man. You know, they were like, all right, well let's not make it as scary. We're gonna make it like that he has the power to shrink down. And then and then you have Ant Man yeah. other monsters who appeared in the in the pre-superhero era where uh the Hulk yeah. was a this kind of like scary beast. There's a monster known as Groot the Living Tree who would make a comeback many, many years later in Guardians <laughs> of the Galaxy. But it was really the rise of the Fantastic Four that cemented Marvel as a superhero comic publisher. Uh-huh. And it, Fantastic Four was the most popular comic title for pretty much all the 1960s. In the 70s, Spider-Man became the most popular comic book title. But in the mid-70s, the comics code began to relax some of its rules back a lot like the Hayes code it didn't you know it didn't happen all at once like this is done it was just kind of like okay you can do this you can do this
1: society is pushing the boundaries more and more with the with the code yeah
0: so one specific easing back in the comics code was they said that monster content would be allowed as long as it was presented with literary value so specifically dracula frankenstein you know all this stuff was so monsters
1: that were books beforehand yeah you can make a comic book okay
0: so almost immediately marvel integrated a lot of their horror titles back into their now yeah superhero regiment so you had uh werewolf by night who was a young man who was a werewolf but he also like had a consciousness when he was a werewolf so he was essentially a superhero you know he's got a secret identity at night he goes out and and fights crime as a werewolf so that's that's where you really start to see this meshing of like monsters and superheroes. superheroes and so then you get Ghost Rider came up in this era he was a demon that that also you know damned evil people to hell and Dracula himself became a part of the Marvel Comics universe yeah so at the, as part of the rush to get the monsters back into the Marvel's pages as well as the black exploitation films of the 1970 Blade was introduced to Marvel Comics as a vampire hunter in the Tomb of Dracula series he was created by Marvel Wolfman and Gene Colan He was originally introduced as a human born to a woman who was bitten by a vampire as he was being born. And he was depicted as a human vampire hunter who was just immune to vampirism because Mm -hmm. basically it was like he had the vaccine, you know. He he had a little bit of vampire blood in, in him as a kid and he developed immunity. He would serve really only as a supporting character in the vampire themed comic series until the 1990s. When interest in the darker side of Marvel was reinvigorated by the Midnight Suns team up, which brought together various monster and demon themed characters for a super team. It was Dr. Strange, Ghost Rider, the Punisher, all the like edgy comics that really took off in the 90s.
1: That sounds like a lot of fun, actually.
0: (laughs) Yeah. But on the movie side, like I said, for most of the late 80s, early 90s, various studios were trying to make Marvel movies, including Roger Corman's New World Pictures who owned the rights to the Fantastic four. films for a while. Yeah. yeah they and fa- they did... tried to
1: do a fantastic four. Inf- yeah. Infamously. They, they
0: made it and then never yeah. released it yeah, just so yeah. they could keep the, keep the rights to it. Yeah. It, but it, but it leaked it's out there. So blade was brought up as a possible property as early as the mid 1980s with Richard Roundtree shaft. Uh, um, that makes sense. as the lead. It came up again in 1992 when L.O. Cool J was rumored to be playing blade in a movie.
1: Was he big at that point? Like and I, I I, I, so? as an actor, as an actor, because I know he's like slowly. I, I remember him in Toys, that Robin Williams movie. Oh yeah, he's like a security guard. Um, yeah, that's like the first time I know of him. And then like he gets really kind of, A little like kind of hot early two thousands, like the roller rollerball SWAT, any given and then
0: Sunday. he did NCIS LA. Hey man, I mean, how
1: many years has that show been running?
0: God, like a, I think they're a doing while, at least a dozen at this point.
1: Yeah, so good on him. Yeah, his first let's see his he oh he was in the hard way with mile j fox and james woods very small role and not, and then he had toys is 92 so yeah it makes sense yep. he'd be talked about for that yeah
0: this is around around the same time he's but that didn't pan out and eventually uh new line cinemas would buy the rights to it in the in the mid 1990s so they brought on david s goyer who was a writer who was kind of making a name in the 90s in Hollywood for being a comics nerd who also wrote screenplays. He had done the sequel to The Crow, uh, The Crow City of Angels, Mm -hmm. in 1996. So Goyer says when he came on, his views were very different from those of the studio. At one point, New Line asked him if the film could be a comedy, like a vampire spoof, which he said absolutely not. He also recalls being asked once if they could make Blade white. So obviously... This was a period when when studios weren't as when fans weren't holding the studios to comic accuracy really. So once Goyer came on, he said, really, Wesley Snipes was his only choice. Yeah. Snipes had been brought up as a possibility before. They kind of handed Goyer this list and he said, oh, it's got to be Wesley Snipes. but Snipes was already pretty deep in the Marvel world. He was trying to self-produce and star in his own Black Panther movie that he had been working on for most of the 1990s. Wow. That, however, wasn't in the cards, as were most Marvel (laughs) movies in the 90s. Yeah. And once it became clear that wasn't going to happen, he signed on to play Blade.
1: I just want to say, think how crazy it was to say, I've been working on a a superhero movie for a decade. At this point Mm -hmm. in time in Hollywood. Like, because you got to think, you said, like, there's no Marvel films, like, besides Howard the Duck at this point in time, mainstream. We have had Batman. We've had Superman. Superman has fallen out have fallen out of the mainstream at this point because the mm-hmm. last films like Quest for Peace is, I'm not, uh, what year that is, the late 80s, I believe. Um, yeah, 87. And then you have Batman and Robin kind of feels like putting a kibosh on the superhero genre in 97. Yeah. yeah. And then, and, and so it just, it, it feels like just a pro, a, a I mean, I don't know what you would call that at that point of, like, trying to make a superhero movie. Like, what people saw that in terms of, is this a genre for film? Because we've made Batman, we've made super, Superman, and there's no legs to him after one or two movies, it felt like. Yeah.
0: And those those were both really the only successful live action TV series, you know. As well, yeah. Nothing Marvel had really been done outside of cartoons, and and the you know the Marvel cartoons were very successful, mm-hmm. but but there had never really been like a hugely successful live action Marvel TV show.
1: And you're also not just that opening with a rated R superhero yeah. movie, mm-hmm. <laughs> and which one is about also... vampires, you know. Yeah, one it's about not vampires. Man,
0: it's not X Men. It's it's no. vampires so yeah so the first blade movie introduces blade and his mentor whistler played by chris christopherson while goyer may have succeeded in keeping blade as an african-american character the blade's mentor character was changed from a black jazz musician and vampire hunter named jamal afari mm-hmm. to chris christopherson as uh whistler so you can't you can't win every fight yeah um in the first film, Blade hunts vampires, especially Deacon Frost, the vampire who killed Blade's mother and turned Blade into the Daywalker. Uh, Deacon Frost is played by Stephen Dorff. Frost is on a mission to turn everyone in the world into vampires, but is ultimately thwarted by Blade. Spoilers. Sorry. <laughs> uh, the first film received uh, middle-of-the-road reviews. I think it's sitting at like 60% on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, Almost all critics were saying the script was not great but the visuals and the action were were really good Mm -hmm. this is also a year before the matrix yeah uh it's very matrixy it's it's kind of the if if the crow is like the movie that kicked off the like goth action phase of the the 90s and then the matrix was kind of the pinnacle of it blade was definitely
1: somewhere in between yeah
0: on the way up yeah but it performed really well at the box office it earned 131.2 million dollars on a $45 million budget and it earned itself a sequel which brings us to Guillermo del Toro's Blade <laughs> 2. So, uh Steven Norrington who directed the first film turned down Blade 2 because he wanted to work on what?
1: Oh god, I don't I don't, I I now just saw it. Um, <laughs> uh I'll say it cuz I just read it League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, is that the one he yes. wanted to work on?
0: Yep. He wanted to prep League of Extraordinary Gentlemen which is also a, a graphic novel adaptation yep. uh, funny, funny
1: enough he also worked under dick smith who was del toro's kind of makeup mentor mm-hmm. at one point
0: yeah norrington was a special effects guy he had kind of made the jump on to director and after league of extraordinary gentlemen was universally trashed he went back to special effects yeah
1: what 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 happens if that plays out differently for norrington because like he literally just like makes that many like yep I guess I'm done making movies. Like, I, as a director. I say
0: I saw that movie in theaters when I was a kid? I loved that movie. It was not. <laughs> it was not until I was like older that I realized that people hated, hated that it. movie, and, and it made Sean Connery quit acting. Quit
1: acting. I didn't dislike it as a kid either. I think it's. I think it's a cool concept, is the thing. I just yeah. think it, it. It kind of fails in making that concept work.
0: Yeah. So yeah, once once Norrington backed out, New Line turned its eyes to rising director Guillermo del Toro, who had just released Devil's Backbone at this point. Mm-hmm. The producer of Blade, Peter Frankfurt, had worked with del Toro when his design company did the opening titles for Mimic, and he thought very highly of del Toro from his time working with him there. Goyer was also a very big fan of del Toro's films. Yeah. So del Toro, who he said was a huge comic book fan, jumped at the chance to make a Marvel movie, despite... I think despite any of his hard feelings towards Hollywood from from Mimic, he, you know, giving him a comic book movie was really the way to to lure him back in. Mm -hmm. Del Toro said, uh, I really almost came to the system of not repeating the same movie consecutively. I wanted a huge change. If the devil's backbone is chamber music, Blade 2 is black metal. It goes to what I think is the essence of action movies, which is very close to the musical genre. You basically have musical numbers tied by a story that is very melancholic. Yeah. Cool way to describe an action movie. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, so Goyer and Snipes collaborated on the script for the sequel, with Snipes coming on as a producer as well. The original draft of the script involved Blade teaming up with vampires to take down a mutual threat, a scientifically engineered super vampire that hunted other vampires known as morbius the living vampire mm-hmm. uh, Goya was excited to bring morbius into the films as in the comics it's a bite from morbius that gives blade his daywalker powers but marvel studios vetoed the idea saying they had plans to make a standalone morbius franchise so that was 2001 <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs>
1: it's still being postponed to this day <laughs>
0: <laughs> coming at some point to a theater near you yeah. morbius starring jared leto so the script was really just barely tweaked to Mm -hmm. remove morbius substituting morbius in for an also scientifically engineered super vampire called the reaper yeah so i mean it's really like a apple f you know yeah (laughs) change change (laughs) to reaper um yeah jared jared
1: or Nomak. jared Nomak is the character name
0: so gory and frankfurt vowed to not try to hold del toro to the style of the first film in any way They said when you get someone like Guillermo del Toro, you don't tell them to copy Stephen Norrington's style. But del Toro was very interested in making sure the film felt within the same world as the first one. One of his first requests on the show was to request all of the dailies from the first film. And he just like spent a week just like pouring through all the dailies. Interesting. He brought back production designer Carol Spire, who he had worked with on Mimic. And they set out to make the monsters of Blade even more vivid than the first movie. The first movie, they're kind of like, you know, vampires are just kind of yeah. normal people.
1: There's no creatures to it. There's no, there's no like real monsters to that world. Yeah. And you and you watched. I mean, you might want to bring it up later, but you watch you rewatched the first one to prep for this.
0: Yeah, yeah. Very. You know, it's one of those things. that it does feel in the same world, but Del Toro definitely builds out kind of the mythology it's 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 a lot better at world building for sure
1: yeah i mean the the, the opening scene of blade a blade i think is still one of the more underrated scenes of those superhero movies that time like it really perfectly introduces the character of blade with the like with with the rave like with blood coming down i think it's amazing yeah and probably the most memorable part of that movie is that opening mm-hmm. <clears throat> and i make i make myself want to put it in this one for some reason a lot of times when <laughs> i think about it
0: yeah, they do go to a rave in this one. They but. do, they do, yeah. Um, We talked about The Strain a little bit last week. Some people have noticed that the yeah. Reapers in this movie look a lot like The Strain and have said, like, oh, Del Toro took the Reapers from Blade 2 to make The Strain. He had actually been working on The Strain for years be- previous to Blade 2. Oh, wow. And so he brought in some of his designs for the vampires in The Strain to use. F- so it's the opposite. So
1: it's But it's basically The Strain show is it's a mix of mimic and blade Two, is what it sounds yeah. like overall
0: mm-hmm. but so aside from snipes and christopherson returning from the first movie the cast is rounded out by previous del toro collaborators ron perlman and norman Reedus. we also have a, a small appearance from the the film's fight choreographer donnie yen who appears as a vampire so brandon what's your what's your background with Blade two <laughs> so- what are your thoughts on the film
1: so Blade Two, it's funny. Blade Two is always the one when I talk to people about Del Toro. They always forget he made this. Like funny enough, I feel like. it's mm-hmm. either it's one of two things. They forget he made this, or it's their favorite film by Del Toro. There's like no, in <laughs> be, there's like no in between. There's like no in between. It feels like it's one I've always liked. It's one I've always kind of felt like is a sequel that surpasses the original. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I haven't. I mean, I've seen the original a few years ago. Uh, again. So I don't know if I feel that way of watching it back to back with this. Or um, but I've always liked this more. I, I always thought the visual style was more interesting to me. Um I've always liked Wesley Snipes' blade. Like mm-hmm. I think oh, yeah. Snipes is one of those guys where we we kind of it's it's like we we forgot about after a certain point. Like he was one of the biggest action stars in the nineties, probably. And especially probably one of the the, the biggest action stars that was a black actor at that point like Mm -hmm. when looking at that because i saw a list of like what they kind of put down for people it was like wesley snipes and like or denzel washington like um snipes is kind of the guy and yeah it is interesting to say that that basically the marvel movies got started off kind of the snipes basically his kind of portrayal of blade um to a point that people are still kind of talking about i think i think like people's uh affection for that has grown over time for snipes blade like it's interesting Mm -hmm. i think i think of in a similar fashion like brennan fraser and the mummy where it's Mm -hmm. like we kind of forgot about for a while but now we're like oh no we always liked him why didn't we talk about this more yeah um
0: yeah and i think i think the blade movies tap into a very similar energy as john wick yeah where it's like i agree is wesley snipes giving the best performance in these movies no does he believe in these movies like wholeheartedly and you can feel it and he does his own you know, he does his own fight choreo. you know, he, he does all the fights himself. Yeah. Yeah. And he's, he is wholeheartedly in this movie and it's, and it's very endearing to see that.
1: Yeah. And, and I do agree with you. I think, I think this one, like, again, it brings those kind of those, those things that del Toro does. It's that world building. It's that he builds out the world more, which is what you ask for in the sequel. That's always kind of the big thing with the sequel, especially with one that's a superhero movie. You want to kind of like build out the mythology, get, give you more of what you liked and then add, new kind of layers to it and he does that well um and it's it's i've always always liked the kind of the action style and kind of the characters of what he tries to do it's very interesting kind of revisiting this movie now uh with looking at del toro's other work and seeing kind of how it is just another building block for him Mm -hmm. uh in his career so what what about you what was your kind of history with blade
0: yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't remember. I I had a lot of friends. This was like middle schoolish for me. Yeah. I had a lot of friends who were like obsessed with Blade. I was not into like comic books or comic book movies at that point. Uh-huh. Um, and so
1: when did that happen? Them. When did that happen hmm? for you? When when did you start getting comic books and comic movies?
0: Uh, in well, in college, I did my thesis uh-huh. on comic book movies from like meant to be from a purely academic. <laughs> viewpoint and got sucked into it
1: that's kind, of, that's kind of a cool story i like that yeah i
0: was i was literally like i i i just knew i wanted to write about gender studies uh-huh. and i went into my thesis advisor i was like i want to approach a genre from the viewpoint of gender studies and i was like yeah i'll do like you know screwball comedies or something he was like no do something new that nobody else has done really like a deep dive and i was like all right what's new right now and at that point it was Super like avengers come out uh, like yeah. literally comic comic book movies, so yeah. Wow. But anyway, yeah. So I saw these at some point at like a friend's house and thought they were thought they were very cool. You know, they're just they're just fun. So, but yeah, the second one was something I I I think I said this last week, but like I didn't become aware of Guillermo del Toro until Hellboy. So yeah, I I probably saw Blade Two before that and didn't come back to it until a couple years later and went, oh man, this is this is Guillermo del Toro. Whoa, that's really yeah. cool. So yeah, I was able to kind of rediscover it through through the lens of of yeah. altor theory.
1: And and I know with altor 2 like I think cuz I I heard that like he originally didn't want to do Blade 2 because he wanted to make Hellboy and they're kind of like, mm-hmm. "Hey, if this does well, you can probably make Hellboy."
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: And yeah, you can kind of see that in this movie. You see kind of <laughs> the early beginnings of what Hellboy will become.
0: So yeah, what are your any any favorite scenes, any any thoughts on on Blade 2?
1: Well, yeah. Well, again, what do we have here, we have a prologue. <laughs> we mm-hmm. have we have we have two things. We have an opening scene that's going to establish kind of the world and that's going to uh, establish Nomac and it's like the kind of like you d- going into like a blood bank or whatever and then ends up killing the people who were there. a, a
0: secret a, a, a secret vampire farming organization yeah. hidden as a blood bank. Yeah, exactly. Already just like a cool cool world building thing, yeah. you know. Like, and great. and a lot deeper than the first the first one gets us.
1: Yeah. And then just, and then also kind of like, but teases at the monster. We don't really fully see the like full on monster effects. Yeah. They, they about talk half, about the scar yeah, on his yeah chin. Until about halfway through the movie. But, but then it has that. And then you go into the blade being like, I'm blade. Like I'm introducing you to like what's, what's previously happened. And aren't they kind of retconning some things? Yes.
0: Yes. Very notably a retcon. By by David Goyer onto himself, but yeah, you are you are definitely led to believe in the first movie that Chris Christopherson shoots himself. Yeah, Blade Chris Christopherson is turning into a vampire. Blade leaves him with a gun, and you hear the gun go off. Yeah, then it it it, the second one is like he didn't he didn't die. I should have finished him off, but I didn't, and now he's a vampire, and they've got him hostage. And it's like oh okay cool if that's what you say you wrote the first one it, you it's it's within your rights to change it I guess. because
1: they had it was uh it was uh M. Boucher right was like like the, the the successor to whistler as dr mm-hmm. karen jensen is what it was if i'm not mistaken yeah and then they're just like no
0: yeah. you're gonna bring him back
1: <laughs> um but yeah, you have that kind of opening of like i'm Blake, here's the world like here's what's happened. i've been searching for him for years and now i finally kind of found him and yeah it's interesting so this watching this this time and it was uh i was reading kind of some letterbox reviews for it and it was the the youtuber patrick willems that said i love they just remade alien but blade 2 and <laughs> it actually kind of has a very similar and that's kind of the cameron influence is what i thought was kind of funny and i'm like oh you're kind of right it's the idea that like okay we're bringing that character back he's got a tent with a bunch of new people it's a scarier threat than what it was in the first movie. Same
0: monster as last time. Same monster,
1: but worse, just like aliens. And then it's also kind of the, Oh, the people there, they're kind of heading the project who you, who weren't supposed to be corrupt are actually kind of corrupt. And they're the reason Mm -hmm. why all this stuff kind of happened. Um, and so it's a very similar kind of thing with that. Um, but yeah, I like the team up aspect they have of the, like, it's a good way to like kind of raise the stakes. It's like, well, what do you do with blade? well make him partner with the people that he hates the most yeah and that's vampires we, we
0: already know that vampires are no match for blade coming out of the first yeah. movie and so you can't just have him kill more vampires
1: and then and also you got to think of like as a vampire perspective hey we can't keep letting him kill us over and over again how can we like get at him because he is kind of he is what we want to be he's a daywalker. Mm-hmm. like it's the idea of like these the the lead vampire now a is that was is that the name yeah um mm-hmm. it's like he wants to get he wants to attain what blade has the ability to walk during the day and still be a vampire um if they want to um but yeah i love the team up to it because again i love the kind of dynamic i mean ron perlman just that's your del toro influence right there he just brings in so much as the member of the blood pack uh, especially in the uh, the the rave kind of club scene they have, mm-hmm. uh, and funny enough, yeah. his name I don't know if you noticed this, his first name is Dieter, which is the first name of his uncle in Kronos. Oh, so he repeats the he repeats the name.
0: There is also supposedly a version of the script out there where he was a Nazi, and uh, that was okay. that was removed. That was removed in in the cut, but. Uh, I've read Del Toro saying like, yeah, if you look back and see how many of my movies, the bad guys are fascist. You got to you got to throw Blade 2 in there as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, his, yeah, his name is Reinhardt. D- Dieter Reinhardt. Dieter Reinhardt. It's very German, very German kind of name.
0: But there, there is he makes it like a, the first time he meets Blade, he makes like a super racist joke at yeah. Blade's expense. And and that they're like, yeah, there were a couple other things where it's pretty much revealed that like he was a Nazi at, at one point, you know, during the Third Reich a vampire nazi
1: nazi vampires they, they get you they always get you but yeah I, again you're seeing those kind of those those themes they're popping up i mean it's a little different it's it's this time it's the it's the monster among monsters that's the that's the 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 biggest threat and that's the the lead mm-hmm. vampire but again what's it motivated by it's motivated by greed essentially is yep. that he wants to have more power as a vampire and not even like for himself it's like he wants like vampires like cause he's kind of at the end of his end of his days and now is he trying to become like immortal to it or is it just mm-hmm. he's trying okay so it, so it's also kind of kind of chronos in a way where like mm-hmm. it's like the, the older man's trying to the, gain some sort of immortality and that's what they're motivated by yeah um but that's all kind of here
0: yeah and it's not even like he, this is this is the only del del toro film in which he has no screenwriting credit yeah so you know that's one of the, that's one of those things it's like it works its way into everything when when you've got like that strong of a, of a thesis for, for your films,
1: (laughs) where the vampire or where the reapers hiding underground where they have to go to, they have to go underground (laughs) to find them. And that's every movie I think is that characters are going underground for something, Uh, except maybe Kronos. Um, It's all here. Mm -hmm. Um, So what about, so, so yeah, I, I like the rave scene. I like anytime you kind of, uh the way he kind of slowly reveals the full monster of the Reaper. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. what what about you? What do you like about
0: this movie? I think one of the things revisiting this after a long time, one of the things I was most blown away by is how well the VFX holds up. Yeah. I mean there's there's some moments. There's a like, few
1: here and there, but not not a lot.
0: <clears throat> and it's noticeable it is noticeable. Yeah. But for 2002 it's very well done. And I think the reason for that and we're going to this is this is where this really starts we didn't have they weren't very well done in mimic there was also what 97 so yeah. it's h- harder to pull off but from here on we're going to see that del toro has an excellent eye for directing vfx and i think mm-hmm. that's because he's cutting back to practical as much as possible yeah so in some of these fight scenes You've got, and it should be stated, you know, Donnie Yen's fight choreographer on this one. I think this one and the first movie have a lot of that kind of like the Chinese film uh, yeah. wire yeah. fighting Uh The Hong style. Kong, Hong Kong yeah. style. Yeah. Influence on, on these films. But some, you know, in this one in particular, there's these some moments that are just too hard to pull off. But that they're almost like there's, there's a couple of these shots I'd be watching and it is like seamless yeah. from going from from vfx to practical back to vfx and and so you don't get that like looking at and going like you know
1: like mimic yeah like Mony Mony yeah, Two was around this time yeah. you don't
0: get the the scorpion rock which yeah. is just cgi the whole time you know yeah when you need to go in closer in this movie when you need to get closer we need to get texture it's practical yeah when you need movement it's it's vfx and yeah del toro's come out and said you know he's a little disappointed in how some of it is held up specifically the fight scene in front of the lights that is like entirely you can tell when it switches Mm -hmm. to there's one like long wide shot where it's just these two people fighting and they're very obviously animated but for the most part i think it holds up incredibly well yeah The, the final fight scene i think is super well done and he gets some really interesting angles really interesting camera movement that you wouldn't be able to get practically yeah but i even think I even think Snipes is stronger here.
1: You know? Uh, yeah. Yeah.
0: I think it's him finding the character. I think it's him being involved in the in the writing of it. And I mm-hmm. think it's a, I think it's a stronger director. Sorry to Stephen Norrington. But, you know, he's not exactly a, a performance geared director yeah. where Del Toro is. You know, he's coming out of this this indie smaller drama world. Yeah. Which, yes, he had monsters. Yes, there are monsters in Devil's Backbone, but it is a drama. Yeah. At the heart of it. Um so yeah i think everybody is a lot stronger here and and it, this this one really feels like snipes got the character
1: yeah i agree and i think there's more i think you get a little bit more emotional moments with snipes in this movie i mm-hmm. think you have i mean you have kind of the, the 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 stuff with whistler in the first one but you have kind of moments of like it's towards the end when like whistler's given the pep talk depending on how you feel about the whistler's giving the pep talk of like like come on son get up or like we got you gotta you gotta fight this or it's the kind mm-hmm. of kind of bittersweet moment of him spoiler alert for those who haven't seen blade 2 yet but like uh the bringing nessa up to the sun and mm-hmm. larry's the sunset or sunrise and her being able to die as a vampire instead of morphing into or evolving into a reaper after she's been bit um it's kind of these and there's kids that I get it, it feels like there's some sort of like I don't know if it's romantic but between Nessa and him there is some sort of connection mm. between them yeah. in some way
0: there was there was one version of the script where they had a romantic connection but that was yeah. kind of taken out
1: but there's still like there's there's like there's something there if it's there's mutual
0: respect there's mutual sure. respect there's, at a, least. there's a kinship
1: yeah and it's so that ending kind of it ends it on a bittersweet note is that she can have this but she also is dying and dying in his arms and he also it's also he gives like it's again a very intimate thing in terms of a relationship uh, uh, a friendship or whatever it's like he lets her take blood from him when she's like becoming weak after being attacked Mm -hmm. like that's a very like deltimore makes a very intimate and like big decision for blade to do that and it's and it's played very small and yeah i think yeah i think snipes you kind of get a little bit more of his i think his sly comedy away too, especially with Perlman mm-hmm. in there to kind of play off of again. It's not going to be his best movie in my opinion, but it's <laughs> a entry. It's a good introduction. If we like say, if we take away mimic, it feels like, okay, Del Toro's entering Hollywood. Now mm-hmm. he can make a big, he can make a big movie
0: and he's doing, and this, this time he's doing it while keeping himself, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's, on it's his turn.
1: you're, you're, you're feeling his voice within it and he's working Again, he's working within a world that's already been created but he's able to kind of add more to it and put kind of a stamp on him especially on his stuff I mean even to the point of like the way the movie uh is shot in terms of color palette like Mm -hmm. it's you have this kind of amber glow through some of it early on that goes in the more dark blues when they're underground um he kind of that's kind of the things he kind of goes back and forth a lot you're gonna see it in Hellboy as well um but yeah, I think it's all kind of there and he's taking that style. He's developed in the indie world, that small and in Mexico. And now he's be able to truly without, uh, obstacles. There's always be obstacles, but not, not the wine scene obstacle. Um, he can fully develop as a, uh, innovative filmmaker on a larger scale.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And he, he, you know, gives the film, a, a fully comic book fantastical feel. There's, yeah, as opposed to the first movie, which was kind of like, there are vampires among us, just kind of set in New York. Like, no, no part of this movie takes place in like a human space. Yeah, you know, the the entire thing is set in the world of the vampires. Yeah, there, there, there's really no scene that's like, there's normal people here.
1: Yeah, at,
0: <laughs> at all in this movie. Yeah, and so then he's able to play with the production design more. To make it feel more fantastical because we're not concerned with the human world at this point this is just about the vampires and the reapers yeah so yeah it definitely definitely puts his his stamp on this one especially it's in in the era that we're in now the the marvel universe era we've talked a lot about how how are directors supposed to put their stamp on a movie when it's the 22nd movie in the series of the marvel universe but um Early on, he was able to come in and say, "Yep, that movie did well. Everybody <laughs> liked it. This is this is what I'm making." And it yeah. and it feels seamless, but it also feels very inventive.
1: I, I think too. Something that, that with superheroes, I think it's almost harder nowadays too because it's a it's it's jumping on a moving train a lot of the times. And yeah. the train with this one's not moving as fast. Is kind of what I say. Yes, absolutely. So you, you train is up.
0: just leaving. The just station. leave
1: the station. You're like so, running towards the ends. Yeah. He <laughs> so. hops on
0: this is two years after so the x-men the fox x-men first x-men movie came out 2000, 2000 yeah so two years after blade this is two years after that so it's starting it's starting to rev up and
1: spider-man i think gets it's released the same 2001. year 2001 is 2001
0: yeah 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 because they you know there was all the issues of having to remove the world trade center it was late 2001
1: yeah. wait was i thought it was i thought it was 2002 because i thought because 9-11 happens later yes yeah, 2002 no okay yeah, it's April 2002. No, okay. because because okay. I was like, Nine, yeah, like, so
0: the same here. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Literally a month, month and a half after. Forget what you think, you know. Vampires exist.
0: My name is Blade. I was born half
1: human, half vampire. They call me the Daywalker. I have all their strengths, none of their weaknesses,
0: except for the thirst. Twenty years ago, I met a man
1: that changed that. Whistler. He taught me how to hold the thirst at bay, taught me the rules, gave me the weapons to hunt with. Silver, garlic, sunlight. Two years ago, he was attacked. They took him and turned him into the thing
0: I hate most. So reception for Blade Two was pretty much the same as the first. They have an almost identical Rotten Tomatoes score. Critics hailed the visuals as even stronger than the first film, especially with del Toro's practical effects giving a more gruesome and fantastical feel, like I said. Mm -hmm. But they still found the story lacking, Um, you know. Pretty much the same notes everyone had for the first one. (laughs) First one. Roger Ebert, however, gave this film three and a half stars and called it a really rather brilliant vomitorium of viscera. So he was obviously taken with del Toro's imagery from from early on. Uh, The film dropped in mid-March, widely considered a dumping ground for movies, Mm -hmm. but uh, became the most financially successful film in the Blade franchise. It made $150 worldwide. On a 54 million budget, the kind of much maligned third Blade film, Blade Trinity, mm-hmm. the Blade Trinity, yeah, right? Blade What's Trinity, it?
1: yeah, yeah,
0: it was not as except was not as uh, successful, and a lot of people aren't sure how much money it could have made if not for the uh, it had a huge drop off in its second week because the uh, NCAA Final Four games were that weekend, and uh-huh. a lot of people contribute the drop off to everyone staying home to watch basketball, so. Could it have made more money with a better release date? These are things people have to think about <laughs> when they schedule movie releases.
1: Especially at that point, because it's a little, I mean, I feel like now with the way media is, I feel like people don't care as much. I mean, like March Madness is still big, but it probably, like, everything's been it's going like, yeah, down you now.
0: Go to the movies and then pull your phone out and check Yeah, watch, and the, see watch the highlights. The, yeah, watch the highlights on yeah.
1: YouTube, 10-minute highlights. Yeah. It's like, who, who wins this year? Yeah, this is like Maryland. That wins this year. Nowadays, I think no one... That would not affect... Super Bowl still does, I think. I think that's the one big sporting event that still like has an impact on uh, film releases. Mm-hmm. I don't know if Final Four would. I don't know yeah. if that does.
0: So, we, I mentioned Blade Trinity. Del Toro was asked back for Blade Trinity, but he turned it down because he had another comic book movie in mind. For years, he had been working with comic book artist Mike Mignola on a film adaptation of his hellboy comic books which were an independently published series published through dark horse comics which is an independent publisher Uh, he had been publishing the comic since 1994 Um, del toro had actually hired magnola on as a concept artist on blade 2 and they were kind of still continuing to work on their hellboy pitch all through the production of blade 2 So Hellboy the series tells the story of a young demon who had been brought to earth by a Nazi occult ritual gone wrong and is instead raised lovingly by the occult researcher who found him as an adult. Hellboy is part of the Bureau for Paranormal Research and Defense, a wing of the FBI made up of superhuman individuals who hunt monsters. So Del Toro and Mignola had had this project going for years up until this point in one of their first meetings del toro and mignola both said they had someone in mind for the lead only to be surprised when they both named ron perlman <laughs> uh del toro this was after after Kronos, del toro was already fond of perlman from working with him yeah. and mignola knew from perlman's performance on the tv show beauty and the beast yeah that he was capable of bringing emotion to a monstrous character under pounds of prosthetics mm-hmm. uh i mentioned beauty and the beast last week that was a kind of soap yeah. opera drama in the late 80s with linda hamilton That yeah. was about kind of the beauty and the beast story updated to modern day new york and ron perlman
1: yeah played the beast and he was nominated he was nominated i think three times for i'm uh, sorry twice for emmy for the role yeah and he won a, a very golden, popular show and he won a golden globe for the the the, the show as well it ran for three years mm-hmm
0: um so as Del Toro worked on the script, he and Magnola began shopping the project around, but they just got rejection after rejection from studios. Lots of different reasons. A lot of studios balked at making a movie with the word hell in the title. They are just <laughs> like, nope, sorry. Um, others asked if the main character had to be in prosthetics the whole time. Uh, one of the notes Del Toro said he got was they said, can he just turn into a demon when he's mad and then he can be a person when he's not mad? <laughs> So he's Hulk. Uh, he's they want yeah, to be. He really want to be a Hulk, yeah. <laughs> and almost every studio they talked to didn't want to make a movie with Ron Perlman in the lead because yeah. it just wasn't enough of a draw. Yeah. So after the success of Blade Two, Del Toro had enough mainstream draw to get Hellboy off the ground, and he started going back for pitches again and included his early footage. Blade Two. At, at this point, you know Blade Two's not even out yet. He's going around. He's pitching again. He's including footage of Ron Perlman from Blade Two and saying, "This is our guy. He can, you know." he could do it so finally he got backing from columbia and revolution studios they began work on the film rounded out the cast with john hurt selma blair jeffrey tambor doug jones who you mentioned last week had a very brief appearance in mimic yeah was cast to play abe sapien he was kind of becoming well known for his movement acting at this point he, he had played the absolutely terrifying mac tonight Uh, in the mcdonald's ads which was his (laughs) big break Uh, he had done uh batman he had done uh hocus pocus at this point so he's starting to build up a a reputation for being somebody with you know this kind of crazy physicality
1: yeah he's he's billy in hocus pocus i forgot about that yeah yeah
0: but the studio pushed for a more famous actor for the character so the compromise was david hyde pierce was brought on to voice ape sapien while doug jones would play the character in prosthetics out of respect to the physical work that was put in by jones david hyde pierce requested his role to be uncredited so really that kind of backfired on the (laughs) studio (laughs) like yeah let's get a name in here we got we got we got niles he's gonna do it and then he's like yeah i don't want credit for this (laughs) so
1: it's like nah and he doesn't do it for the sequel does he no,
0: Doug Jones does Doug the Jones voice has the it, Yeah, Yeah, he, he was asked, the studio asked him back, and he, he wouldn't do it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind on of David Hyde Pierce, you know? Yeah. Like, it, it's going kind of, to it,
0: Go into it. I'm sure he, like, you know, he signed on. He was like, yeah, I'll do it. Yeah, and he I goes was into the studio, to he sees this footage of, like, how hard Jones had to work. He's like, well, I'm just taking all the credit from this guy. <laughs> so, with the cast rounded out, the show began a grueling production schedule in Prague. They shot six days a week for 130 shoot days
1: oh man <laughs>
0: yeah
1: god <laughs> oh.
0: just a nightmare um it was really all due to the heavy amount of prosthetics used on the film um it was four hours a day to apply perlman's prosthetics and up to seven hours a day for doug jones jones has admitted that sometimes he just told his prosthetics team to leave some of the pieces on and he would sleep in them to save time for the next day
1: god Here's the thing about prosthetics again that's it's kind of a thing with like like again with Confrey all recently with Batman. It's like no matter what happened, like no matter what we kind of like in terms of like progression or we make in filmmaking. Prosthetics and makeup have always taken a long time. We've yep. like done it down a little bit. It's like Colin was like, "Oh yeah, it took me 4 hours." But like we 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 got down the to two towards the end. <laughs> <laughs> and you're just like, "That's a that's a good chunk of your day. 4 hours is a good chunk of your day." That you're just in a chair waiting. And yeah. like and in terms of shooting, like, you know how stuff is. It's like you you might get a few minutes of usable footage that day. And you're just mm-hmm. and you're sitting in a chair for four hours. And depending yep. on how extreme uh, how kind of advanced or kind of um uh layered these these make these process are like it, it's just it can be grueling. It can be grueling. Mm-hmm.
0: You can you can understand why there was a big push around this time period to make everything Digital and now everybody's like, "Oh no, why don't we go back to practical?" It's like practical looks great, takes a (laughs) lot of time and money. A lot of
1: time, yeah, 130 days to be exact. (laughs) Oh my god, I can't even imagine.
0: Well, I mean, you think so? To hop into favorite scenes, yeah. I mean, you just think about some of these fight scenes between Hellboy and these monsters yeah that, you know are a little bit of vfx but a lot of practical so you've got somebody in this like big monster suit i'm sure you got like puppeteers doing the because they've, they've got all these tentacles yeah that are always going everywhere i'm sure you've got puppeteers there so you're not just staging a fight scene which takes a lot of time also yeah but you're staging a fight scene with all these prosthetics involved so yeah absolutely nightmare but yeah what are um, what's your what's your background on on Hellboy? what are your what are your thoughts
1: Again, it's like again, I came to Hellboy very late in the game. I don't know when it was. Um, it, it honestly might not have been until I moved out to LA before I watched Hellboy. It, it would have been a it'd been a really? while, yeah. So it, it, it's interesting kind of revisiting it because it is like it's it's one of those movies. Like it's it's one of those superhero movies that has a pretty and we'll probably talk about it at some point in the future uh, a pretty loyal following. Mm-hmm. Rap. maybe he's not as big as a marvel or a dc but a fairly loyal following and it's one that i don't think people people realized was as loyal as they were i think with the more recent remake of this it, it pretty much got backlash because it's not del toro and it's not ron perlman yeah. and and so coming into this previously and now it's just like it kind of The role was like meant for Ron Perlman. Mm
0: -hmm. Like
1: he, there's there's certain like there's certain roles when you watch someone in them that you're like, oh, no one else can play this. Uh, I think Downey is a prime example with Iron Man. It's like you kind of can't. I say this and watch them recast him at some point, but you kind of (laughs) can't recast him and have him have whoever's doing it try to play the same exact character. Yeah, you have to really like. Take it in a whole... You have to do a Bond... Like a James Bond thing. Take it in a whole different direction. And Hellboy, I think it's just like... It, it's, hard to, it's hard to take Ron Perlman out of it. Because mm-hmm. he is so charismatic, funny. Creates a whole, I think, interesting, uh, layered character with Hellboy. So yeah, I... I it's one that's always fascinating me because it's being released in the middle of the rise of superhero films. Yeah. But... It feels like studios don't give it enough credit, or people don't give it enough credit for what it did in that yeah. time. So, what about you? What's your kind of history with this? I was, film? I was an
0: early adopter of Hellboy. Hellboy, <laughs> as soon as it came out on DVD, didn't see Hellboy in theaters. As soon as it came out on DVD, it exploded in popularity, and this is something that the studios didn't see coming. Exploded in popularity at my church. <laughs>
1: like that DVD was getting
0: passed around at my church and people were like hey listen it's called Hellboy but like he's like this demon but he's catholic and and like the themes are all about like being like what makes you a good person and um yeah it was like crazy popular in my church and and like my my like I watched it at youth group I think one day <laughs> and then like I showed my mom and my mom loves the Hellboy movies like it's it's interesting. It's got a lot of heart to it, yeah. For a a superhero movie about demons, you know, yeah. Um, and that's 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 prominent as well. But yeah, this this was the movie. You know, from then on, when Del Toro did something, I was like, oh, that's the guy that did Hellboy, yeah. And then obviously, Pants Labyrinth that it, it changes everything. But um,
1: but yeah, I think yeah. Hell Hellboy and Pants Labyrinth I think, really the one two punch that just kind of make him a household name, at least with film fans for sure but
0: yeah yeah early early adopter of hellboy for sure and um big fan saw the second one in theaters you know all about it all about and, the hellboy life
1: and i'm I'm intrigued to talk about that because that that comes out an interesting period to hellboy to the golden army we'll discuss that mm-hmm. uh uh next episode um yeah so this film i think again you get the Toro world building Another thing I bring up to get the prologue, it's the opening the whole head, Hellboy being kind of, uh, coming through the the portal into the real mm-hmm. into the into the our Earth our our universe. Um, but one thing I bring up here too, damage. I want to see it, it how much it, how farther it goes. You see it in Blade Two as well. It's inter- there's some interesting father son dynamics. Mm-hmm. Blade Two has it with the kind of nomak being the son of the lead vampire Mm -hmm. and kind of the uh, betrayal or something that they that that has occurred there and in this one you kind of have this strained father-son relationship between hellboy and and john hurt's character trevor like because like they're he he calls him son he calls him father but they're like they're like he because hellboy's still kind of a teenager it feels like yeah and he's he's always pushing back with his dad um but that's what kind of like even when he sees him it's like oh he's still he's still mad at me or whatever like there's something that's like there with this father-son relationship mm-hmm. it's heartfelt but it is strained, just like blade 2 yeah and i i know it's gonna come up in one other movie and i'm intrigued to see if it comes up in other films as well um but again i think um again underground stuff as well they have to okay. go underground subways <laughs> subways uh, but yeah, great fight scene—the subway fight scene. I think the kind mm-hmm. of museum fight scene.
0: Subway, the f- subway fight scene. You know, you get the wisecracking. That's I think that's yeah. when Perlman really lets loose. You get the, the kittens. The kittens. You know, it, it, the, it's just so so the characterization's so well done yeah. through that whole sequence because you've really just met. You know, you're introduced to the world through Myers yeah and then he meets hellboy and then you go on this mission and that's when it switches to being from hellboy's point of view
1: yeah uh
0: is is once we get into that that scene and so that's that whole sequence from the museum to the subway is really us meeting uh hellboy for the first time and i think yeah. it's it's so well done in, mm-hmm. in introducing him to us
1: yeah you get the like uh-uh, now the second date or whatever he says yeah, the, no
0: they, tongue no yeah.
1: tongue yeah um be yeah, a great I I think he's amazing. I think he's no offense to the rest of the cast, but just like miles ahead in some way with like just this portrayal. But I think, because I think, I think what, what, uh, Del Toro's kind of smartly does, like he establishes Selma Blair as Liz, but he's not trying to like give you everything up front. Does that make sense? Like you Mm kind of don't realize what she can fully do. Like until we get deeper into the film and and abe is kind of it's it's more it's it, they feel like characters that are just adding to kind of the world but allowing you like okay cool we can explore this mythology more as we if we go if we do make another movie it feels like mm-hmm. there's enough that, yeah. there's enough world there to do more if we want to mm-hmm. um but yeah what about you what's what's some stuff that you like in this i mean movie? i just
0: i love i love everything about the look of this movie this is yeah. this is del toro putting his stamp on a on a hollywood film oh yeah he, he was he was getting there with blade Two, but like the look of of abe is very obviously
1: yeah it's early shave of water <laughs> <Feels> <laughs> something i'll like. see again
0: yeah you know i'm not ai don't i've never read the hellboy comics but i'm familiar and like one thing i read was like the the assassin character the clockwork assassin yeah. that's entirely a creation for the, that that character appears in the comic books but he's not in that form at all so that's entirely a creation for the film and i think that is so cool like the you know that this this idea that like this guy's figured out immortality through like this clockwork system in his body and he has to like ratchet himself up before he goes into a fight and he's got Mm -hmm. like dust and sand pouring out of him (laughs) anytime he gets stabbed like that is the kind of creativity that that makes you know the first time i saw this movie i was like this movie feels different yeah from you know the, the other stuff that's coming out around this time that that, that are just action movies and this yeah. is around the period there i was thinking when i was watching blade and then blade 2 and Hellboy, we had this weird like paranormal action period yeah. in the early 2000s you've got that yeah. like van helsing with hugh jackman you've got the 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 brothers Grimm with yep. matt damon and heath ledger yeah, he's ledger yeah um it <laughs> feels like after that after that crow matrix kind of like neo goth period I mean, died off then we got this like fantastical horror action period
1: where's more like what like the mummy is a kind of a, it's an action yeah. horror um yeah. would you throw it's not horror it's sci-fi but we just throw men in black into this kind of category yeah as yeah, well? yeah i
0: think so um just just kind of definitely um getting more outlandish you know, yeah. with the action and, and and monsters and beasts and that kind of stuff. Yeah,
1: this pitch black count? Is pitch black with the beast <laughs> count? I'm yeah. just looking. I'm, so. I'm, I just I typed in paranormal action movies and it's surprisingly a lot come up. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, you get yeah you get kind of like yeah paranormal, and monsters become a big part of these like films. Um, yeah. do you think do you think we'll see more of that? Because like we, when I'm looking at this list, I notice that all of them are like. 90s or 2000s
0: (laughs) yeah i mean you know marvel's starting to tap into this period of marvel comics we'll get blade at some point with marshal ali um we've got moon knight coming
1: yeah are we doing is werewolf at night happening too is that is that a thing
0: i've heard i've heard rumors of that being a series yeah and then and then moon knight's coming soon which moon knight was originally appeared in a werewolf by night Uh series he was a, he was a, a a villain in the Werewolf by Night series, which is why he's the moon knight. You know, he's, yeah. he's the moon. Um, But yeah, this this is just something, like I said, that felt wholly, wholly original, you know, when yeah. I saw it. And it was I was pretty young. I wasn't like I wasn't sitting around going like action movies aren't original these days. But it was <laughs> it was like super exciting for me. And, and I think this is this is the film that feels the most fully formed like this is Del Toro and he can make. He yeah. can make a Devil's Backbone or he can make a big Hollywood movie. It's still gonna feel like him. Yeah. And that that's something I love about this movie too, is like out, the action sequences are excellently done. Once again, it's that great melding of VFX and practical. Yeah. Almost seamless in a lot of the movie. But the the like dialogue scenes, the characterization scenes are are just as important in this one. Yeah. Which maybe Blade Two didn't quite bring over but you yeah. know have as much fun watching the scene where hellboy goes and spies on, on oh, that i love that scene i love than that you scene. do in any in any of the fight scenes yeah
1: yeah well it's that scene because it brings out character to hellboy but it starts off with like what i find funny it's the kind of progression of that scene where it's like it shows him and then it like he's like he runs into that kid and he's like oh god your hellboy's like i'm on a mission kid and then it cuts back and they're like sitting there watching the date being like What's she saying? What's what's going on? He's, he's like, oh, he's yawning. He must not like the day. He goes, uh, oh, just watch his arm, kid, watch his arm. Like it's like <laughs> it's just like and then he throws the rock. It's he again, he he it's a really hard thing to do. It's like he's kinda of, he is kind of playing this teenager that's mm. in love throughout the movie. It's like he is like it's like a character who's going through puberty, it feels like, as hellboy like hellboy is going that doing that. Um and that's the scene that kind of like Brings it, but it brings out del toro's comedy i think del toro is underrated for his comedy in some way i think he's actually fairly funny both in film and or in his works on film and also like in his interviews and things i think he's just a funny guy and i think that comes out i think ron perlman is is kind of the the best representation of del toro's humor on film is what it feels mm-hmm. like to me
0: yeah you know there's obviously great action sequences and then there's just so many Great little character moments peppered in I love when Tambor Lights his, his cigar for the cigar thing. You know, these two guys who are like Butting heads constantly And it's the, just this little symbol of, of Friendship he's like let me light that You Use a wooden match let me light yeah. that for you. You, you you gotta save the flavor
1: <laughs> My mom baked him
0: She's laughing hmm? She's sitting on a park bench And she's laughing <sighs> That's it I'm done
1: they don't look like spies.
0: Are you kidding me? Look at this guy. Those shady little eyes, that phony grin. Are you going to eat that? No. Hey, he's yawning.
1: He's bored. Yeah, the old yawning trick. Watch his arm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so how did this, how did this do?
0: So, it released um, another one, another spring release, April 2nd, 2004, to moderate financial success despite some distribution issues. So, film ultimately made uh, $99 million against a $66 million budget. Mm-hmm. Shooting 130 days for just $66 million is pretty impressive feat Actually, in yeah,
1: you're, you're not wrong.
0: <laughs> but uh, a lot of people think that it would have been more successful if not for the backlash it received from theaters. A lot of theaters, especially in the Southeast, sorry, <laughs> sorry to Hellboy, uh, refused to run the film because of the title. They just didn't want something. <sighs> they didn't want hell written up on their, on their marquee.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, especially because at the same time, they were raking in a lot of money from The Passion of the Christ yeah. uh, being in theaters. So theaters just you know you're you're obviously having a the you're t- t- making a ton of money off the christian film going community and you just don't want to ruffle, ruffle any feathers putting hellboy up there as well
1: did you do you have the name that they used the the the, the uh there's a name they used to not say hellboy as, a, he- as a, hello boy hello was? boy it says yeah. hello boy they used hello boy to market <laughs> the film in the south yeah instead of hellboy Oh, man. And of the
0: theaters that did run the film, a lot of them yanked it prematurely for Easter weekend. Um, so Damn. it didn't didn't run as long as it as it maybe should have. So, you know, it still made money. Uh, Mike McNollas has come out and said he was very happy with with the way it performed. You know, if you're some guy who's been publishing like an independent comic book for for 10 years, hey, that played out played out pretty well. Yeah. And regardless of the controversy, the film enjoyed very, very good critical reception. Many mm-hmm. critics hailed it as del Toro's official arrival onto the American mainstream scene. You know, these are a lot of people who have been watching del Toro his entire career and, you know, have, I'm sure, felt like they couldn't get their, their readership to really buy into Devil's Backbone or something like yeah. that. And now you now you get to go like, I've been watching this guy for almost 10 years now, and now you guys should go see him. Like, yeah he's really making it happen uh elvis mitchell in the new york times wrote mr del toro avidly lavishes this texture on hellboy giving it a kiss of distinction it's an elegant haunted house of a picture with dread and yearning part of the eeriness um roger ebert gave it three and a half star stars specifically praised ron perlman he said it has found an actor who is not just playing a superhero but enjoying it he chomps his cigar twitches his tail and battles his demons with something approaching glee you can see an actor in the process of making an impossible character really work
1: yeah and he's he's completely right about that (laughs) i think i think it does um i think he really does capture again i say it's like he i don't see no offense to david harbour it's like i don't see anyone that can like play hellboy i think it's 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 so kind of
0: that that adaptation it was a losing battle especially because there's still talks about a three del toro doing a third one so to just kind of drop one in between was 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 a was a rough call sorry sorry to uh everyone involved in that one um so yeah that that rounds out our, our two comic book films for for this episode.
1: Well, I I bet this did very well on home video. It just feels yes. like a home video. I didn't
0: absolutely. Um, yeah they, they they released um the home video had like a pretty cool feature where you could like it would it would pop up on the DVD when there was a moment that Del Toro had pulled directly from a comic panel and you could like click and it would like pull oh, up that comic panel to show you man the way that the visuals matched up
1: i honestly because we talked about this a little bit when hunter came on for *Austin powers like just the dvd world is so like for back then the, in the late 90s 2000s because they are making so much money on home video mm-hmm. like how they would spend like that's the thing is like you you'd make your money back in home video most of the time mm-hmm. and like they would just load that stuff with special features like i, I remember i'm just a random movie to throw out there that had like a two disc special edition was waiting and they just had like loads of like behind the scenes and documentaries and all these different things. And I was just like, why does this movie of all movies (laughs) have like a two disc special edition and they are, then you have the, the unrated cut or the director's cut. Um, yeah, it looks like this movie came out August 1st, 2004 on, on video selling more than a half a million units. And it's open its first week uh, when it's released. That's a lot
0: <laughs> for that period.
1: Because you're like, what's like, what's a mo- like, what's the kind of movie cost at that point? Like your uh, our, our DVD cost like twenty dollars at least. Yeah. Maybe even yeah. more because it's two thousand four. And
0: twenty four if it's a special edition. You special know, you edition really for that.
1: So just like just like twenty. So right out of the gate, you're gonna be making is it ten million. You're making ten million dollars just off that one weekend alone on dvds yeah. that yeah like that's and that's gonna that's something we kind of keep being sold forever i love reading this uh they used to have weekly breakdowns for VHS or for for home video which i find funny in terms of what it is now uh and apparently shrek was running at the same time for 146 straight weeks oh yeah it's long-running chart dominance I, great I think home
0: video release big, Shrek's karaoke in the swamp you you had to buy, <laughs> you, even if you'd seen it in theaters you had to get that one yeah
1: is that a whole other show we just go through old dvds old blu-rays and like kind of break down the the world of them
0: actually oh, shrek was shrek was the last film i really remember like buying on vhs and then and then yeah. once it like like swapped over yeah. we had to get it on dvd too
1: that's what it is um, that's, that's that's it was a vhs alert it's not yeah. DVD. They're still going to B- be VHS at this point.
0: So we, we, I mean, we've we've covered it as we've gone, but but so in the grand scheme of Guillermo del Toro as an all tour, what are we what are we seeing develop this week? What are we seeing continue this week?
1: I mean, I think you're really seeing what del Toro can do on a, on a, on a big budget, like uh, on mm-hmm. a large scale, but with with that large scale what you're not seeing that you see sometimes the directors, you're not seeing his voice or his themes or his tropes or whatever you want to say, or character types. Like you don't see them going away. They're still no, yeah. staying getting stronger. You're getting stronger. It's like you're and some, in some cases, like I in the father son stuff you're seeing develop even like that maybe was there early on, but now becoming part of the forefront in a way mm-hmm. with like both blade two and uh, Hellboy. I mean, even again, I I said about the vampire and his son, but even Whistler and Blade is this oh, is yeah. this father son relationship that's kind of strained too, and like doesn't it doesn't become strong again until Blades a, until uh, Whistler thinks he's about to die. Um, but that's all kind of popping up here. But I mean, you still have the underground stuff, and and you still have kind of the. I mean, even Hellboy. Would you say it's? I mean, Rasputin is kind of a a still a supernatural type character but mm. out of all the monsters he's the most human and he yeah. is kind of the, the worst person of them all Um, so you still kind of have that theme going that the, the, the monster is among men basically he's
0: still, he's still not a fan of fascists
1: still not a fan of fascists still <laughs> still really but he, he, again we did it Said with Devil's Backbone too it's like he had he, he adds a little context to like it's the World War II aspect of Hellboy or like that's something that's kind of part of the world he adds other things that have occurred in history or something as part of the, the, the world of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's, it's kind of the early, I feel like we've always kind of had like Nazis are kind of the, as we said, you said, earlier, like the kind of big villains of most kind of comic booky serial type stories. And, uh, I think you said, I love the kind of Hitler nod of just like, Oh yeah. When Hitler died in like <laughs> 1956, oh, yeah, Hitler died in 1946. Oh Diddy now <laughs> mm-hmm. like they're just kind of, they have fun kind of um ties to real world stuff in some of these films
0: yeah. um yeah and and you know you brought up kind of the the idea of Hellboy kind of a teenager like yeah as he's playing yeah. this like grizzled guitar or grizzled cigar chomping like almost like a detective kind he's got a little bit of that to him but he's also got like you do get some of that like childlike uh, aspect that, that Guillermo's yeah that del toro is always doing is he 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 is still kind of a, a kid he's he's been locked away for so long for pretty much his entire life that he's, he's still kind of figuring out the way that the world works and we're while we're with him we see him start to have to face a world without his father yeah um so yeah it's it, it's pretty cool in in this movie that even with you know big old ron perlman playing this giant grizzled demon character we still get a little bit of that voice in in this movie
1: yeah and i think what works with hellboy so much is that he has that blank slate they didn't have with blade 2. he doesn't have anything mm-hmm. to refer back to that allows him to kind of do whatever he wants to um in this world all right so that's this week mm-hmm. is that everything on this well, well okay actually who's the mvp of this period I'll ask that. I think it's pretty easy.
0: I think it's Ron Perlman. It's Ron
1: Perlman. Yep. <laughs> he's the only one in both films. Um, and yeah, I think I think he's great in both of them. I think he's, I think he's fantastic. Like it, I, I thought he was so great in Blade 2. I was like, wait, was he in Blade 1? Because I just felt like he had so much chemistry with Wesley Snipes to mm-hmm. me. Where I was like, it feels like this has happened before. And it hadn't. Um, yep. So I think he's fantastic in both, both films. So what do we have next week?
0: pan's labyrinth so as as del toro said he never wants to follow up the same film twice yep so we go back back to a a spanish language film back to the the spanish civil war but but really really vivid fairy tale of Pants pan's labyrinth and then and then we're back for hellboy 2 and then we get the one i don't think either of us have seen right we have not seen pacific rim
1: we're getting pacific rim all right uh, as the as the final film or the final film of part three of next week yep. but go watch them and prep for our next episode um but that's it that's all we have for in this episode if you're a fan of the show or a new listener make sure you subscribe to the nation podcast so that you can stay up to date on all of our new episodes you can subscribe to our show on out podcast spotify google podcast stitcher or wherever your podcast and if you haven't already make sure you rise review on whatever platform listen to the show on
0: we love your feedback guys you know we'd love to, love to hear what you're thinking of the show and, and then you get to you get to tell other people to listen to it. So it's a win-win.
1: Yeah. Tell your friends. Tell your family. It's a team effort, guys. Mm-hmm. Be part of the team. helps us out. We like hearing from you guys about if you're enjoying the show. And we, ha- we have a the loyal following that we love hearing from. But we'd like to hear more of you guys. So please uh, reach out to us uh, any way you can. Um, also, shout out to Dusty Fields who redid our music for the show. I haven't mean to say that, but kind of read a little revamp of our of our theme song so thank you dusty um and finally don't forget to like and follow us on facebook twitter instagram tiktok all that jazz as always thomas thank you for joining me thank you for having me and thank you all for listening hope you listen to more episodes soon bye